What I do is inconsequential. Why I do what I do is I get to shorten people's journeys every day. What I love about our hospitality industry is that it's our mission to make people feel cared for while on their journeys. Together, we'll explore what hospitality means in the built environment, in business, and in our daily lives. I'm Dan Ryan, and this is Defining Hospitality. Today's guest delivers on a high-quality product and experience for his customers. He's a resilient and persistent entrepreneur. He's the co-founder and host of the long-running and very popular Principle of Hospitality podcast. He's the founder and director at Open Pantry Consulting. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean DeVries. Welcome, Sean. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm great. It's... uh. I'm really excited to do this talk with you because, uh, you know, I'm new to podcasting and I've, within my little niche of the hotel world, um, developed a, a kind of a cool following and I'm getting tremendous, wonderful feedback. And it's, it's always surprising uh, and humbling when I go to events or, or conferences and people are telling me that they listen to it and they love this. And what did I think about that? And it's just also surprising. I know you've been doing this since uh, 2017, but like, Tell me about your journey. Like, how did you get into podcasting? Yeah. Um, thanks for asking. Thanks for um, making me be a guest on the show. It's fantastic to be on. It's always fantastic to talk to anyone in North America because they are the epitome of what hospitality is. So it's always a fantastic thing. Oh, wait. Um, but then before you answer the question, <laughs> I'm really curious about that. So tell me more about that. Why would you say that about us North Americans? Uh, well, I think... North America for a long time has always been, especially, you know, obviously you can hear from my accent, I'm from Australia, um, has always been like this figurehead of what hospitality is, the best the best level of service, the best um, dining restaurants, the best hotel experiences. It's always been the top of the top. So when we've always looked at trends in Australia, especially in the restaurant industry, we've known that places like California, New York, Chicago, um, you know, different places around the country are the places that are probably 12 months, 18 months ahead of what we're doing in Australia. So we can look to what's happening in the US and then say, okay, well, in 12 months, that's going to be a trend here. Now it's 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 hyper growth because of things like social media. Mm-hmm. But, um, but most definitely, it's always been the place where the best hospitality service is, I think, in the world. Um, so, so actually, that's, that's, Super interesting um, because I think we all draw, we all derive inspiration from so many other places. We all stand on the shoulders of those before us. Um, sure. What's a recent example that you saw or that you're seeing even now that's 12 to 18 months ahead of you guys in Australia that you're excited to uh, get the word out for your, your clients? Oh, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I would say, it's going to be a pretty boring one, right? But I think things like technology and that kind of stuff, which have come through in the US probably slightly slightly earlier than what's happened here in Australia. Now it's starting to be pretty, pretty level. But if you look at what's happening in quick service restaurants or QSR restaurants, um, the fried chicken sort of explosion that happened um, four to five years ago is now come to Australia and, and is a really defining market. If you look at burgers, gourmet burgers that happened in America first and allowed us to really think about what we're doing here in Australia as well hasn't really happened so much in, in hotel experiences. I think probably high end bespoke hotel experiences happened first in the U S and, and especially through Europe as well. And then now that's starting to trend here in Australia, 
it's an interesting market here in Australia, Dan, because if you think about the size and population of Australia, like it's less than 30 million, right? It's around that mark. Yeah. Um, so the whole population and, and, and market in Australia is equal to California. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty small market. So you can sort of take things from America and, and pitch them here in Australia quite easily. Yeah, I also, well, when you say QSR, that quick service restaurant, quick service, mm-hmm. restaurant, we call that fast casual here, I think. Is that the same? Um, probably slightly different elevation. So you've got like, uh, you've got like uh, fast food and then you've got quick service, which is slightly different. So you might go up to a counter and order. You might have some elements of table service, but probably not really. Um, and then you go to a, a premium fast casual. So mm. Um, fast casuals, more table service and uh, higher end product value. You're probably more likely to pay, um, you know, over 15 to $20 a, a main item, that kind of thing. Right. And I guess, and for our listeners, I think what's so interesting is like most of the world that I'm speaking to are people who are owning, operating, designing and building ho- hotels and resorts, not yes. so much on the restaurant side. So I'm really intrigued um, to learn more about your open pantry consulting and then how that all led into the podcast. And when I doing the, uh, the, the little bit of research I did on open pantry consulting, it just seems to me like you're coming in at a time of change within a restaurant. So you're coming in, you're seeing how it's operating. You're evaluating what the menu is, what the design of the overall place is, how the staff is trained, how the team, like how the team cares for others. And then really kind of like mixing it up and creating a new strategy and a new path forward. Yeah, that's a great way to um, um, conceptualize exactly what I do. Um, so I've been I've been in the industry for 25 years and been lucky to own businesses quite early in my career, like at around the age of 21, 22. Um, I've worked across bakery, uh, across QSR venues, um, dessert, salads, um, all these different segments, coffee. Um, so I've been very fortunate during my career to actually have a lot of different experiences. Um, also also work in different parts in Australia. So I'm originally from Adelaide or South Australia. So if you sort of got the map out, that is the middle, middle lower part of Australia. Very um, far away, almost as far away as Perth is from anything. Oh, Perth is the most. <laughs> I don't know how you get there. I've always wanted oh, to go, but I don't know how to get there. Perth is interesting. Um, I lived in Perth as well, but uh, Adelaide, if most people know things like the Brosser Valley, if they really love wine and those kind of things, that's, that's where South Australia is. Um, and then lived in Brisbane. So people probably know Brisbane or Gold Coast and, and that kind of side of uh, Australia. So lived there for seven years and then did live in Perth, um, the most remote kind of city in the world. Cool. Uh, it's pretty much their own country um, over in Perth. It's very, very different. So lived there for six months or so and then came and lived in Melbourne uh, seven years ago. So most people will know Melbourne for its coffee, its laneway bars. Um, it's really great sporting culture. Uh, it's a really great place to be. And I, I decided sort of seven years ago that I wanted to live and work here because it is the real center of food in Australia. It's it's very much a rivalry between Melbourne and Sydney, but I find Melbourne just that bit more accessible. Um, and I've, you know, really, really enjoyed it since I've lived here. And then the podcast sort of came out, you know, as you said, sort of five years ago, because I had friends who were asking me to sort of do a podcast. And luckily... Um, funnily, as we talked before the podcast, Dan, like I've also got a, you know, I've got a face for radio, right? And I'm lucky to have a deep voice and that kind of stuff. And and people said, well, why don't you do, why don't you do a radio show? And podcasting was becoming 
a lot easier then. So I just started to talk to my friends in the industry um, and talk about their experiences and, and what they were seeing coming forward because I knew from informal kind of learning, as we call it, um, and people passively listening to podcasts that they would learn stuff and wouldn't even realize it just from other people's experiences. And yeah, I've just enjoyed it. So now we're at 180 odd shows and it's a, it's a really good podcast and, you know, I enjoyed doing it and we're going to move to another level this year, which is really exciting. So, but I also love, like, obviously I've, I've been in my industry for about the same time as you in, in the hotel side for about 25 years. And I'm not, I don't consider myself an expert in hospitality at all. Like I'm more of just a super fan and I love this industry. And I think one of the things that I love so much about it is it's all about interpersonal relations and empathy and, and how you make others feel. So it's almost as if I just know it when I feel it. And I don't know. And I, and I also think it's all just really transferable to so many other industries so that while you're in this restaurant niche, or I'm in a, in a hotel niche, um, it's all about making sure that everyone's having the best possible journey. Right. So, and I'm curious because in, on the, on the restaurant side of things, it's really, I mean, it's a, it's a taste journey. It's a service journey. It's all of these things. And so with your, you know, expert hotel hat on, how do you define hospitality as a, as a restaurateur? I think like anything in hospitality is a collection of moments, right? So we're fortunate in the hospitality industry, and I see, I see it as true fortune, the fact that we get to share some of the most important people's, uh, some of the most important moments in people's lives. And that might be a surprise engagement. That might be a birthday. That might be, you know, some other form of celebration. It might be a first date. It might be a wedding. Like all these different things that people entrust us with is really, really important when you think about it as a, as a hospitality you know, professional. So I sort of see it as, oh, now I've totally forgotten where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Uh, speaking of journeys, like I was, you were just taking me on a full on right. journey and it is 6 a.m. in the morning for you. So everyone yes. should just know that. <laughs> yes. Um, I think... <laughs> I just think as a hospitality professional, like you just have to be really humbled. Like I, I love what you said about empathy there, right? Like being humbled and being empathetic to what we're actually doing in this, in this role, because it's exciting and fun. The fact that as a hospitality professional, you get to work in these venues every day, you get to have fun and excitement. You get to stand shoulder to shoulder with great people every single day, but then dealing in these great events in people's lives i think is a real responsibility and i know that people in the industry really take that on board because they can see the kind of excitement the kind of love that that actually generates and i love how you make it i, I guess we all choose these vocations that we're or not all of us i think we all should choose vocations that we're all passionate about but i feel like what i'm getting from you and from our previous conversation these really small moments which could just seem like these inconsequential and transactional events, they carry so much more weight, right? And there is, you said there's a responsibility um, that you're almost like time stamped in our short lives in a memory, right? And however that, uh, that's also what I love about the built environment as well. We are creating these spaces where so much work goes into them. Oftentimes it goes on unnoticed by people, but when they have a very important 
rite of passage or whether it's a business meeting, a family vacation, you're kind of stamped into their memory. And it's like this, um, I don't know, just a very kind of rich and important and impactful um, moment that we all, or at least I, really take a lot of importance or give a lot of importance to. Yeah, I totally agree. Can I can I share a story with you, Dan? To Absolutely. Hospitality moment. So, I I was working for uh, a burger burger chain here called Grilled, which is like a gourmet um, burger chain. I'm trying to compare something uh, to like in the US, but it's uh, about 120, 130 odd outlets around right. around Australia. Um, 200 seat sort of restaurant. We were very close to a hotel um, in this particular venue that I was working in, in Brisbane. Uh, it was a quiet Saturday. We actually had quiet weekends, which was a bit was a bit weird. Our nights were okay, but our days were really, really quiet just from where we were. We were sort of in the city and weren't really near very many um, uh, places of residence. But anyway, very close to a hotel. So we used to get a lot of weddings and that kind of stuff that would happen on a weekend, obviously. We had very quiet lunchtime uh, and we had a bride come in who I knew obviously wasn't in a bridal gown yet, but had a bridal party come in and they were they wanted lunch right before their wedding and we got to talking and saying okay well we're getting married today or whatnot and then they got all their takeaway and that kind of stuff and then and then left obviously super excited and that kind of thing and we had a bit of time like from a staffing point of view like we had a bit of time and my staff said to me like what can we what do you do you think we should do something a bit more special because they're getting married and we obviously know with the hotel is and that kind of stuff so then what we decided to do was get a card that was at the news agency. It was really, it was actually not a fantastic card, but we made it fantastic. Um, and then got every single person in the restaurant to write it and say their best wishes for that, for that couple moving forward. And then also gave them like a hundred dollar gift card. Right. And basically said, look, your last meal as a single person was on us. Can we make your first meal as a couple on us as well? And just made it really, really joyful in a way. Um, and then also got a bunch of flowers and then delivered that to the hotel and said, well, these, you know, this uh, bride has come down. We know her name. Like, can you please give this to her room? And that kind of stuff. And this was in 2009. So it was just the start of Facebook. And so we had the next day. So I was excited. Um, I was glad we did something good. The staff were energized. Next day, um, she put on Facebook. It went absolutely ballistic. Um, a viral campaign, like a viral post. Um, just for the fact that we did something for the pure love of it because we wanted to actually share in that moment with her. And I knew that that would be a really important story that they could continue to tell from that burger restaurant that, you know, could have done nothing. Like we could have done nothing, but we decided to do something that was elevated in order to make their day 2% more important, right? But we don't know that that might have been their first date that they went on, right? Right. Um, so those kind of little things that I think even in any point of hospitality that we have an opportunity to actually deliver a moment and experience which is elevated if we want it to, it's just us up for us as hospitality experts and professionals to actually listen to the guest, listen to the customer and try and elevate that experience for them. 
And it was totally a small moment. You didn't know what the outcome was going to be, but it was your intention. And I think that's like, when you talk about empathy and intention and appreciation and gratitude, it doesn't require an act of Congress or parliament in Australia that to, to make all this happen. It really just takes being present and mindful and seeing what's happening in front of you. That's Mm -hmm. an an amazing story. And I'm, I'm glad it went viral because I think we can all learn from these little small moments, these small inconsequential moments that are just kind of just passing us by in life are those bookends or those milestones and signposts that people really remember in their life. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, I think they just, I think it's just great. Like when I think about that moment and that was like 12, 12 odd years ago now. And like even me retelling that story takes me back to that moment and how I felt and what my staff were asking me. And that's a cool thing. Like there's not many jobs, I don't think. Like I've done hospitality pretty much all my life except for three months, right? Where I did something else and then decided to come back. Um, There's not many jobs that that can happen in that way, I don't think. Totally. So I think that's, that's really super important. And, you know, and thank you for sharing that story because like just hearing that story also, it makes me think about, Hey, what's a, it's inspiring to me. And I'm sure other listeners about what, what they can do, you know, yeah. how can they have an impact on someone's life like that? Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, I think, you know, when th- thinking about your, um, the open pantry business, um, open pantry consulting, I'm envisioning kind of a Gordon Ramsay thing, but with not as much yelling. <laughs> That's what so many people say to me. It's really funny. Or do you, are you a yeller? Uh, not anymore. Okay. Uh, not, that I've, not that I've turned 40. <laughs> um, no. Basically what we do is we help, we help hospitality businesses either start up or scale up. Mm-hmm. So um, people will come to us with a concept and go, Hey, I want to, I want to do this particular concept or this particular part of dining or coffee um, I need to top, find a venue. I need to set up an operations um, for this. I need to set up a supply chain. Um, can you help me with that? Or they've got to two or three venues really well. They've got some nuts and bolts about what's happening. Usually it's from, you know, usually it's by osmosis, but they've set up a really good brand, um, a decent supply chain. They need to get it better. And we help them try and scale it if they want to go to eight or 10 or wherever they want to take their brand. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. I think that oftentimes we can all learn from the projects that have had the biggest impact. So like if you were to go back in your catalog of past projects, what was, and I love that it's two different trails, right? It's, it's uh, the, from the startup side or the scale up side. So tell me, I guess on the scale up side, someone who had something reasonably good, what was some of the things that like, if you were to, take a little wing of bat or eye of newt or whatever you use in your, in your potion and your process <laughs> to like, what was the most uh, impactful or most out, outperforming um, outcome that you can re- recall? So I got asked pretty early on in, in the start of Open Pantry Consulting to actually bring a fried chicken brand from Singapore into Australia. And, and then launched their three venues into Australia. But we needed to test it with the first one in Victoria, um, in Melbourne. Um, and we had to take this concept from Singapore and then slightly mold it and change it. So it was coming from a, 
a more fast food kind of level driven uh, experience in Singapore, smaller venue to make it a bigger size venue in Australia, uh, and then also change the product range. So obviously it's a fried chicken, like you know it's going to be chicken, but we needed to change it from uh, what was not a free range product to a free range product. So we basically changed it to uh, a more high quality spec product. Uh, we also brought alcohol into that brand um, and then bottled drinks in that brand. So it had, it had a fountain um, drinks. So I'm trying to think what you call it in the U S yeah, fountain drink. That's okay. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah. So we're elevating everything there, um, but also not losing its soul. So losing its essence of what actually made it a successful brand in Southeast Asia around 15 restaurants at the time when we opened it here in Australia um, and make sure the branding was actually right for the Australian market. So there's differences and nuances in every single region. And totally. even though Singapore and Australia are really, really close, like there's, there's a lot of differences between um, what each market can actually deliver on and talk about. So that was probably the most exciting thing, having that, bringing that to Australia and then being on that project for over 12 months, launching their three stores, hiring a hundred odd staff um, and really being on that journey with them from, the start of what they were doing and seeing empty shell restaurants, getting them fitted out, making sure they're running correctly, operating correctly, um, and literally bringing every single team member along the journey uh, was a big, big experience for me, but super exciting. Like we actually had to fly, once we recruited the core team, like the management team and the supervisors and those kind of things in Australia, then we trained them in Singapore because obviously we didn't have a restaurant to train them in uh, to skill them up in Australia. So actually coordinating people in Singapore, making sure that they enjoyed their experience over there as well. So coordinating for me, coordinating two markets. Um, so I think making sure that brand was successful in Australia for the time that it was here um, and, and making sure it fit the market was probably the most important thing along the journey that I've had so far. And what was the name of that restaurant? That was Four Fingers Crispy Chicken. So they're still um, active in Singapore and in Thailand, Vietnam. Um, doing really well. I had a buyout here in Australia, but um, but yeah, no, it was it was just a, a really important journey in my career for that sort of twelve to fifteen months that I was on it with them. Yeah. I think uh, looking at Australia as uh, you know, just being on the doorstep of Asia, right? You're it's all yes. right there, and I, I think about you know Singapore is such a kind of an incubator and a a crucible for all these different cultures and ideas and cuisines. And then I'm envisioning it coming down to Australia. You kind of put your own spin on it, make it Australian, but also, you know, still aligned with, with Singapore. Have, the, have there ever been a, has there ever been a project like that where it's come from Asia down into Australia and then you, it turns into something a little bit newer and then slingshots back up into Asia to even more success. Oh, that's a great question. Um, there's not there's not many. It's interesting with with Southeast Asian brands that come to Australia. Like they either make it really quick um, and will expand out to sort of 20, 30, 40 sites or they'll really be throw back. Like sometimes there can just be a, not a cultural difference, just a difference in conversation and how you talk about a product. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes that doesn't translate to Australia or they don't. Um, the other thing is, <laughs> the other thing is interesting and probably a bit different in Australia. 
I've seen a lot of brands do this. And, and when they come from overseas, they'll in, initially go to inner city markets. So they'll, they'll, they'll do that push in the inner city first, thinking that's going to get them credibility first. Where often, depending on, depending on the type of brand, it's actually better to go out of suburban and then come into the city to make sure that it is a bit more relevant. Like you can test and learn a bit more without being thrown to the wolves so quickly in inner city markets here in Australia or in CBD or, or um, yeah, CBD or downtown markets here in Australia. So, um, so there's you, not a... You, you, you try and get Kath and Kim to like it first. <laughs> that's a very good analogy, Dan, but that, thank you for the... Seg- yes, that's very important. Yes. Kath and Kim, that's exactly what I say to my clients. And um, yeah, I just find it's an easier way to do it, right? Like it's usually cheaper lease, like rent and all that kind of stuff. It's usually easier to get staff um, in the outer suburban markets, not all the time, but it is. You can usually do a bigger footprint. You can usually do drive-through, like all these things that make it slightly easier um, and less risky testing it in outer suburban markets first. So yeah, it's a really good idea. And then if Kath and Kim do like it, is it yes. you're not guaranteed success in the CBD? No, absolutely. Especially not now. <laughs> All right. All CBD, right. And, CBD and downtown markets, right, are going obviously go through a change around the world right now. Yeah. Um, so but, I think... Uh, but especially in Australia, you guys were really locked down in a major, major, major way. So, yes. wow, I, I, I forgot about that. And especially now everything, especially yeah. Melbourne, yeah? Yeah, so we had uh, oh, what's reported as one of the you know longest lockdowns in the world. Um, it's over. It was over three hundred days over that two years. Um, you know, there was most periods of that we weren't allowed to go more than five kilometers or ten miles from our house. Um, you know, four reasons to leave home. Like it was just you know it was just decimated, and that's why the restaurant industry, as all industry, as all um, hospitality. People would know listening to this podcast around the world, Dan, like the industry has been decimated. So it's in a market like Melbourne, like coming back from that has been very, very tough. Totally. And I feel like from the financial crisis, that whole 10 year um, bull market, if you will, in hospitality and, and real estate and credit cycles and everything to COVID, you know, hospitality in from the financial crisis. And then you go back before that, it's probably like, September 11th in the US anyway. And maybe before that, I don't know, maybe some, some other, finan- it was another financial crisis before that in the, in the previous cycle. But hospitality is all the, always the one that gets stung the first because that's where people start pulling back their expenditures. Mm. What we're seeing in the US market though is that it's really, it's, I think people might've, many people have had their last straw and they just, it's so hard to get people to want to come back into mm-hmm. hospitality. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things that I'm seeing from just having all these conversations is it's such a great industry. It's so transferable to any, any other industry, right? Because you're teaching service and empathy and like walking in someone else's shoes and delivering an experience and impacting people. But if people come into hospitality now, I would say from a career perspective, the more than I think any other industry, it's a very steep um, trajectory on your career path right now. Are you yep. seeing that uh, in Melbourne and Australia in general? Oh, most definitely. Like it's the best time to join the hospitality industry, right? You're going to get, as you said, you're gonna, the steep learning curve is there. Like you're going to have the best opportunity that you ever had because there's so many opportunities that are that are going wasted right now. 
Mm-hmm. So therefore, and you're going to get paid the best that you ever have as well. Like I think the hospitality industry, especially here in Australia, like we're paid quite well um, anyway, but there are a lot of places that, you know, uh, weren't paying properly. And I think the industry has now realized that they need to pay high quality for high quality people. Um, and they're doing that because they, because they don't have a choice and because they've woken up and realized that's the most important thing. So I think in turn with that, like a career in hospitality has never been a better time because you get all this opportunity across different departments and across different parts of the brand. And, and when I think about starting when I was 16, like having the opportunity to, um, you know, be in a bakery and ice product and then, you know, after 12 months, then start to do doughs and start to be a baker and all that kind of stuff. Like if I was doing that now and starting 16 now in the same career path, like that would probably be accelerated even more because it would need to be from a business perspective, right? So I think that's an important thing and a great thing as long as the training systems are underneath it to underpin it to make sure we get really great quality training because the, the biggest challenge right now is that if hospitality um, owners don't have their ducks lined in a row in regards to training development, they've they finally get all these people come through and, and say, yes, I'm going to start working for you and this is what I'm going to get paid and I feel really excited. But if there's not great training programs and, and onboarding and all those kind of things, especially in the first, I'm very much a believer in the first six weeks of someone's employment, being positive and being exciting, um, then they're not going to stay. And there's, there's no point in bringing people on when it's so hard to bring them on right now if they're not going to stay for very long. So I just, the people who listen to your podcast, Dan, I, I just hope they're definitely thinking about the training programs that sit underneath it as well, not just mm. the fact that it's so hard to recruit really great quality talent. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a challenge for a while. How are you getting that story out? Because I, I thinking about the training programs in particular, if you really have a dialed in training program, as much as we'd all like to say, hey, I want you to work at this place forever and feel aligned and every, people go. People do these other things. And I'm a big believer that if someone comes work with, with me, I want them to become the best version of themselves so that they're armed to go do whatever else that they want to do on their career path. How are you, how are you guys getting that? How do you get that story out with your restaurants and your clients of, to tell them that this is the best time? And is it resonating? Are, are, are you able to change your messaging for your clients and yourself to just draw and attract more people? Yeah, I'll probably, I'll probably talk about it a bit um, through social media, a tiny bit. Probably need to talk about it more now that we're talking about it on this podcast. Um, it's probably been a hard thing to talk about, you know, at the moment. When, when there's so many challenges in the hospitality industry, you sort of got to pick your battles, you know, and I know that it's very, very hard for people to recruit at the moment. So you don't want to sort of hit them with this. <laughs> Make sure you got everything operationally right as well. Like you just need, like, Hopefully people who've been experiencing the industry sort of know this kind of stuff. In regards with my clients, it's honestly just telling them like, and it's probably the point now where I'm able to have these open conversations because we deal a lot in people management and recruitment and onboarding and training and all those kind of things, developing safe operating procedures, SOPs, um, that I'm now having those conversations when I start to recruit. Um, Okay, well, we're going to recruit for a venue manager or we're going to recruit for a, uh, a sous chef or something along those lines, right? Cafe manager. What is their first six weeks going to be like? And quite often they'll 
not have a really good path there. So we'll try to make sure it is a much, much better path to make sure that first six weeks is excitement and they're enjoying themselves and there's training there and it's underpinned and they've got someone to talk to and there's a buddy system going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really the point of recruitment now where before I was not really thinking about that as much or not having those conversations. But now because the, cha- the market is so challenging to actually recruit great ca- talent, I'm actually having those conversations when I start to recruit. Right. And then speaking in the world of restaurants, which I don't know very much about, but I'm hearing you say like menu development, training, supply chain, mm-hmm. you know, design and lighting and execution, like of the built environment, all the standard operating procedures um, of those big buckets, which do you think is your, like, what's your superpower amongst them? It's a great question. Um, yeah, I'd probably I'd probably say the recruitment path, and then and then going into the training section. So I think I'm very much a. I've been really really fortunate, Dan, in the fact that I've had a lot of different experiences with different brands before I started consulting. Um, I became a business owner quite early, as I said at the start of the podcast. I think that taught me a whole heap. Um, I've been able to visually merchandise for the early part of my career, which is you know really made the rest of my career really really um, a lot. A lot easier, I think. I think visual merchandising and retail food like just helps people in hospitality think about spaces a bit differently. So I know I've got very good spatial awareness as in as in the energy in a space, how it should move, how it should flow, where customer flow is going to go, where staff flow is going to go. But I think if I think and supply chain, obviously I've been involved in supply chain for a long time and making sure people get the best deals and the best range. But I think if I think about my love, it's making sure that the best quality talent are in the best quality spaces to make sure they have a great career. And that probably goes back to me wanting to leave a legacy because when I started at 16 and I had this moment where I had a really, I had a fantastic employer. Like I don't think I could have had a better employer, but there was also a moment at sort of 17, 18 where I was about to walk out and leave. And if it wasn't for a conversation I had with my boss um, where he really cared I probably would have left the industry. So I think about those kind of things a lot. And and what do I want to leave on, what legacy do I want to leave on the industry? And it always comes back down to people and not just spaces that we actually work in. Because it's it's like if if you're impacting these people and and helping them be the best versions of themselves, right? Then Mm -hmm. they go on and do the same to someone else. They're, They're, well, you hope, but the odds are they're going to pay it forward. And if you really connect on that level of caring, and empathy, um, I think it's a, a real recipe for success. When you go back, like I'm picturing you covered in flour at 16, like working <laughs> in a bakery. Yes, who, a lot. Who was, who was that mentor? Who was that empl- that boss of yours? What was his name or her name? Uh, Greg, his name was. Greg. Yeah. Uh, what's he up to now? Uh, he's doing a bit in hospitality. He's more into, there's a sports team here called the Adelaide Crows. Oh, sorry, in South Australia called the Adelaide Crows. So he's deeply involved with them. Um, and, and does a lot of menu development and that kind of stuff for the players, which I think is pretty freaking cool. Um, so he does a lot of that kind of stuff because he's always been a bad, um, AFL or Australian rules, um, fanatic here in, here in Australia. So yeah. Got it. That. And mm. then if you think about that moment when you were going to leave, right. And then he said something, what did he, what did he say? Well, like walk us through the conversation. What, what, what helped him? What, what how sure. did he impact you? So I guess to give you a bit of a uh, bit of understanding, so I had a I had a friction with a with a baker who was a lot older than me, 
and he would be jealous of me to some extent because I was I was sort of moving up the rank, I suppose, a bit a bit quick, more more quick than he wanted me to be because he was annoyed. And so there'd be this friction every time that we'd work together, or uh, well, most times that we'd work together. And I sort of just got sick of it. And I'm like, well, I don't want to deal in this workplace anymore if I'm going to be talked to by someone who's 20 years older, older than me in that way, um, especially when you're working at 2 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the morning. Like, it's not a fun way to start the day. Anyway, so I'd said something to um, his wife, which was also a partner in the business, off the cuff, and she knew that I was annoyed. And then, and then she was in the bakery that day. And then five minutes later, he rings me up and he says, hey, are you free for lunch? And I said, sure, like, you know, I would have just gone to sleep. Um, but that's, that's cool. He's like, okay, well, and he took me out to this really, really great restaurant. And he just talked me through, like, he listened to me, right? He just listened to what the issues were. He validated what I was saying. He's like, yeah, I've seen that as well. Uh, and then he basically said to me, look, we think, you know, and, and it was good that he said the word we, like we as in he and his wife, Christine, think that you're a one in a hundred employee. We know how important you are to the brand. You're like the brand is more important than you, but you're really important to us. Um, we want to see you succeed. Give it another six months. I'll try and alleviate this issue that we've got with the other baker and talk about it with him as well. And that's what happened. Um, it kind of got worse before it got better, but I trusted the process and that baker left within the next six months. Right. And then there was a lot of clear air for me to do what I needed to do. He bought another bakery. I ran it, went and ran that bakery um, at the age of 19. Uh, you know, had 20 staff underneath me, had full control, and then went on to buy a business at 21. Wow. Um, what I heard in there was this idea of just listening and the idea that he's saying we, and he's really curious about your story. And again, if I think back to my most memorable life experiences in the workplace or while traveling, it's always when the people are listening and they hear me and they might get that card and put in the hunt, the gift card and, you know, say, Hey, this is your wedding day or, or whatever, but you have to listen. And I think that's also, we were talking before we started recording about, you know, you've been doing this for a while. I'm new at this medium, but I love it so much because I'm just learning and I'm just curious. And if I'm doing my job, right. I'm using my two ears and one mouth proportionally and just really listening and learning from you just me personally, but then everyone else is that's listening is learning as well. And I'm getting that feedback and I, and I love it. And I think as we look at hospitality and just making others feel comfortable, it's really hearing them and like opening up that heart to just being empathetic with them and learning and making everyone feel supported. Yeah. I think that's probably why I've stumbled a bit on today's podcast because I've had to talk a lot more than I normally do, Dan, when I've got a microphone in front of me. So I find that I find that listening and and funnily enough, listening was not. It's only been part of sort of what I do and what I'm really proud of. Probably the last ten years, like even that bravado of me, you know, owning a bakery and then owning a second bakery quite early on. Like I've got this male ego that like I'm going to smash it, right? So all of a sudden, I stopped listening to people, and then I just started talking because you know I'm the boss here and I'm going to talk and you're going to do what I say. Like I went through this weird period of just. Um, working a lot, working 100 hours a week, not really caring, 
um, as much as I should have and all this kind of stuff until I needed to. And then the last 10 years, I think I've just had this bit where I've just gone, well, it's, I'm going to learn so much more if I listen to what the problem is rather than tell you what, than what the solution is because then maybe I can come to another solution that's going to help the situation even more. And I think that's where I feel quite sometimes guilty of being a podcast host. And I'm sure you might feel this as well, because we're listening to people's stories and people's journeys. And when you've done a lot of that, like you're like, wow, I've taken on all this information of all these amazing people. And it's just fantastic to have those conversations. That's probably why you're addicted to it now, right? Like you're just having these amazing conversations all the time and learning and listening to people that you might not have done before. And I think that's just an important thing of doing this kind of things. Yeah. And it's also the, this podcast thing, like in the, the longer form conversation where, okay, you go into a restaurant and you're having a conversation, you're learning from someone, but I, you know, I'm getting interrupted by like, would I like water sparkling or still, what would you like to drink? What's your order? And it's, you don't really get to sit in this place of exchange. Yes. And and again, and like, again, it's called defining hospitality, but like, I feel like this is also a part of hospitality, right? And it's just like a new thing for me. And I think for a lot of people that just kind of fuels so many ideas and, and, it, and on the feeling guilty side, in a way I'm hearing this, it's impacting others. I don't really feel that guilty, but my goal is I want to write a book. So I've already have all the chapter heads and all that. And, um, but I think it will just kind of fuel into this whole thing that it will leave an impact. Like I forgot what you said. You wanted to leave a legacy. Um, yes. And we're, like, we're in this really small industry. And I think that no matter what industry, big or small, we all have the opportunity to leave a legacy, to impact someone else, to really pay it forward. And uh, I don't know, it's just, it's cool. And I, and I, I can only imagine how weird it is for you, who's the interviewer to be interviewed. <laughs> yes yes yeah it's quite odd that's why that's why i have really short answers dan because i'm so used to just being the host and that kind of stuff but i i think going back to what you just said there i think we need to understand as hospitality experts like how important employing the people that we do is and how important those first couple of months are in people's brands because quite often with hospitality we're taking people who are coming from challenging environments outside of work, who may be coming from, you know, um, bad relationships or, you know, those kind of things. They've got a lot of challenges. And the, real, the, the reason why they come into hospitality is because they want to be part of something. They want to work side by side with someone. They want a community. They want a second family. Like a lot of brands will talk about them having a family environment in regards to their staff, right? Um, a whole lot of brands deliver on that, which is a fantastic thing. But the importance of training someone for the first time, like a young Sean at 16, to making sure that was a positive impact rather than a negative impact is a big responsibility. So I think about that all the time. Like how we're impacting the people having their first job. How did you choose baking at 16? I actually wanted to be a chef. So I wanted to be a chef, an apprentice chef. And I went, uh, I went to a major hotel uh, when I was 15 and we basically did a lineup of, you know, um, apprentice chefs that they were taking on at that time. And, you know, you'd you'd go and there'd be, you know, a hundred people turn up and they'd sort of take 20 or 30 or whatever. And then I didn't, uh, didn't get a callback and, 
and they didn't want to uh, take me on. I think I was just really, really nervous and that kind of stuff. Uh, and there was a there was a bakery chain that was a retail bakery chain that was opening up around the corner from me. And I, I sort of thought, well, I want to be a chef, but it's going to be really, really hard unless I do an apprenticeship and my parents don't want me to finish school and that kind of stuff. So maybe I could do this baking thing on the weekend and sort of learn elements of hospitality because I really love cooking. I like to bake and, you know, I bake cakes and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and that's sort of how it just started. And then baking's really underrated. Like baking bread and pastry, like I can't do Benoiserie very well. Um, but baking bread is really underrated and the fact that it's just so therapeutic, right? Like I think a lot of people realize this during the lockdowns of 2020 and they were, you know, started sourdough baking and all this kind of stuff. Um, just having something that is pretty much a science experiment go over this period of time and all these elements that you've got to do in order to make sure that it ends up the right way, uh, I think is fantastic, you know, yeah. and it probably suited me at that time in this sort of black and white environment. The fact that I had to work to a recipe if you know, if you do, if I didn't work to that recipe, then it wouldn't work out the way I wanted it to. So I need to think about what that recipe was first. And yeah, and I think that you know, baking is probably what sustained humanity from the very beginning of when we first became people, right? And right. there's this total idea of warmth and smell and hearth, right? That to me embodies hospitality. And it's the reason why I was asking is. I don't know, in just reading magazine articles or watching TV, you see all these people that really had these corporate jobs. They hated, they hated, um, but they were just grinding it out. But so many of them, their dream was to become a baker, right? And then you hear the different stories of, okay, well, I'm going to follow that dream. And then they're like, oh my God, I didn't know it involved getting up at two in the morning so that I had to do all this. And then, <laughs> yes. so then they, they start, but they love it. They're passionate. And then they figure out, as far as going and building the team, it's like, okay, well, some people love getting up at two in the morning. Like the, there's a whole, I worked for a construction company when I was out of college and I got put on a seismic retrofit in San Francisco and I was working the night shift, which was so weird to me, but I would go to the supermarket like at, you know, three or four, five in the four, three to five in the morning, whenever work was over. And there was a whole other world of people that were there. And I'm sure many of them were bakers. Yep. hundred percent. Oh, when you find out that as a baker that all your friends are either security guards or nurses, um, you realize you're in this this pocket of the industry that is uh, is really quite weird but exciting at the same time. Like and the thing I like about bakeries and baking, and I didn't realize this at the start, is that people come to you every day, right? Very much like a cafe, right? Cafes and bakeries are very similar, hence why so many of them together. But the fact that you get to be part of someone's life nearly every day is such a responsibility, but such a cool thing. Like the amount of kids I've seen growing up during my time voting bakeries and, and people, you're part of people's lives in a weird kind of way, like just for two minutes a day, like as you're slicing a loaf of bread or as you're serving them something from the cabinet, it's a really freaking cool thing, you know? Um, I think it is anyway. So, so that's why I sort of, love that I fell into bakeries rather than it sort of, you know, rather than any other way. I'm very, very glad I didn't become a chef at the start. Yeah. And when you were working at two, would you, would you be up, would you be up all day and then go there and then sleep after? Like, what was your, what was your, like uh, your sleeping schedule? Yeah. It, it depends on, it depends on the shift that I was doing. So I'd either have like a 12 or 1am, 2am shift, or you'd have like a late shift, which would be a 5am shift. Right. 
So if I was doing a 5 a.m. shift and I'd work till 1 o'clock, uh, 1 p.m., then I'd come home and I'd usually stay up until uh, 9 o'clock or so and then I'd get up at 4.30 and then go to work. But if I was doing a sort of 12 to 8 or something like that, then I'd come home, I'd sleep straight away for about two to three hours, then I'd get up, have lunch, go about the day, and then I'd go back to bed at probably about 8 o'clock. So, yeah, you you never get like eight hours sleep, which is always the challenge, but... Um, and sometimes I would get like, especially when I was owning two bakeries, like half an hour. Um, and I'm not even joking. Um, but, but yeah, like oh, it was pretty often for me to sort of get five hours between shifts, which was always the biggest challenge, especially when you're a young guy and you're trying to keep relationship down and all these kind of other things you want to do and go to parties and go to clubs and all these other things, but you, totally. know, you, just, you just get by, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So as you're, you know, Australia's opening up, you have new projects happening. You've got your podcast. Like what's exciting you the most about the future now? I'd say probably what's exciting me the most is hopefulness. I feel we've got a real big opportunity to recreate the industry in an even more positive way um, and bring on really great quality talent into into this industry for a long time. And I think the people that have stayed around the hospitality industry really want to stay. And I think they've got an opportunity to really build the foundation of a really strong industry in Australia. Um, Australia is really fortunate in that we get paid appropriately and, and, and those kind of things that we, we have, yeah, just a really great trajectory here in Australia, but the American market, especially is more career driven. You get a lot of people who stay in the industry for a long, long time, where Australia, you don't have that as much. And I think now we have an opportunity to really think about not only really great quality pay, which we do in Australia, but also great quality training systems and a really great employee experience um, coming through. So I'm excited for that. Uh, I think there's going to be really a lot of really great, cool brands that are coming through, especially in that outer suburban kind of market, which now you've got a work from home market and a CBD market, people not working from the CBD or the downtown every you know five days a week. Let's just call it the Kath and Kim market. okay now the kath and kim market like it's really exploded right like now you've got all these um outer suburban markets which are really really exciting doing really great quality hospitality uh so i'm excited for where that's going to go i think i'm excited for things like delivery um options and where that's going to go to robotics like there's so much more i'm excited about for the hospitality industry i think it's a i think it's a great time because there is so much change and uh, it's been needed for a long time, so I'm excited to see that change come through. Yeah, in the, the on the delivery side, it's something that I miss so much because we, we lived, you know, I raised my kids in New York City in Manhattan, and then with the pandemic, we moved up to Connecticut, so about an hour away. We're not too far, but the uh, just I took for granted so much what could just show up at my door in like 30 <laughs> minutes. Great food. Oh yeah. my god! It it um. I miss it so, so, so much. Um, there's so many great things about the lifestyle change and everything else as well. But I think on the food front, God, it's just such an incredible, it was a different experience every single night. It was great. Yeah. yeah. I think that's what, that's what makes me stay in Melbourne for the moment. I'm really worried about living in Melbourne because I, the coffee scene is just incredible here. We're so blessed with an amazing coffee scene. Um, and <laughs> To leave that, I'd be really, really concerned. So let's Wait, see what uh, I do. <laughs> on the coffee scene, mm. a flat white, is that from yes. New Zealand or is that Australian? 
No, that's Australian. It's Australian. It's Australian, okay. mate. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> I, whenever I'm with an Australian or a New Zealand, they all a New Zealander, they always order a flat white. Sometimes my yes. wife will order a flat white. I just like black coffee. What the hell is a flat white? Oh, it's basically it's basically a latte with not as much foam on top. So it's basically flatter. So you still have mm-hmm. a you still have your, you know, uh, creme at the top, but it won't be nearly as nearly as prominent. So it's just mm-hmm. flatter. So that's taken off. Yes, with a palette. Yeah. Well, that's the other. The coffee scene here is not so great either. So, oh uh, wow, really? Yeah, there's very. I think it's a real um, to have a really great coffee shop somewhere around where we are. I think is so needed, and uh, it just doesn't exist. It's weird. Yeah, right. Melbourne's coffee scene is very much like Portland. Mm-hmm. So, so, like, kind of, um, it's kind of hipster oh. cool. Like a lot yeah, of third like stump town, coffee. stump town. Yes. Right. Like yeah. Very, very cool coffee bars, you know, a lot of filter, um, mm-hmm. a lot of pour overs. Like it's just, it, it, we're just blessed to have really great quality coffee. Like, so yeah. Yeah. My old apartment was across from this place, Grumpy's, which had the best coffee. And then my office was right next to Stumptown, And I would just go right. there all the time. And again, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about the, the knowing people, at a bakery or a cafe every day. Like I just remember having just really awesome life conversations with my coffee guys that I would see every single day. And I miss that point of connection. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the good thing. That's probably why seeing some Australian cafe scene kind of coming through into America as well. Like I think mm. most Americans really love the sort of Australian sort of vernacular and how we go about things and we're a bit laid back. And I think that works in cafes. So that's where you see in sort of Proud Mary being in Portland and and now going to Texas. And you're obviously seeing Bluestone Lane, which is headed up by Nick Stone, which is which is exploding in the US and the cafe scene as well. So I think that's the exciting thing about what we can, you know, give to Americans as well as this amazing cafe scene that we've got in Australia and bring that to bring that to the US. I'll bring it. We could use it here in Southern Connecticut. So uh, we'll, have, <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to take that conversation offline. Uh, 100%. Uh, I think it would be great. Um, okay. So last question. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to you now. You said you're 40. 41. Oh, yes. 41. Okay. Yeah. So 41 year old Sean, you teleport back in time to 16 year old covered in flower, Sean, what advice do you give yourself? I'd probably tell myself to be more patient. And I think this is probably the case with a lot of young males is that you want everything yesterday. Um, and I think I needed to just trust in the process of baking. Actually, the actual theory of baking actually was how I should have lived my life a bit more. So the fact that it is slowed down, it's methodical, it's thought about, but things will change, you know, seasonality changes bread and all that kind of stuff, which is important. So you had to be ready for that. And I think I wasn't as ready as I um, could have been if I if I really look back and be critical. But I think patience was the most important thing. And probably what we talked a bit about before Dan was listening, right? So I think I need to listen more than I talked. Um, unfortunately, I talked more than I listened. And uh, and just be aware of those around me more because sometimes you you know you always have the best experiences by listening to those around you and and hearing what they've got to say and and what they're doing as well. Like you learn so much. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably what I'd tell myself, but 
I'd tell myself that you're in for a long and great ride. So just hold on. And just be curious and quiet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> be more quiet. Yes. I'm talking. <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. Uh, awesome. Now, Sean, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, sure. Um, so probably two ways to check out what I'm doing. So openpatriotconsulting.com if you want to, you know anyone in Australia who wants to get any consulting work done for the hospitality venue and then principleofhospitality.com. So that is where the podcast lives and you'll be able to see the old episodes and that kind of stuff and, and everything we put out um, from a written standpoint as well. Um, and then you can hit me up on LinkedIn as well. So I'm pretty, pretty loud and vocal on LinkedIn um, and always happy for a chat. So wonderful. Well, Sean, I want to say thank you again for your time. I mean, it's so cool to be talking to another podcaster and one with such a, I don't know, such an amazing life experience such as yourself. Thanks, Dan. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're very welcome. And I also just thank you to our listeners. Again, just the feedback I'm getting from all corners of the world, even though it's round, is just amazing and surprising and humbling. So if this evolved your understanding of hospitality in some way, please share it with a friend. And uh, thank you, everyone. We'll see you next time.